Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with University of Illinois Extension, coming at you from a delightfully springy Macomb, Illinois. And today we have got a great show. We have got commercial ag educator Dennis Bowman with us. He will be chatting with Ken, Katie, and myself. Uh, but before we get to Dennis, let's introduce our hosts with us every single week. We have Katie Parker, local foods educator in Adams County. Hi, Katie. Hey, Chris. How are things going for you? Oh, it, it's going very nicely. I, I, I can't complain necessarily because um, we did have some rainy weather last week. I remember the show last week. I also had horrible allergies and they're back um, now that the weather has turned nice again. So I apologize if I uh, sneeze and, and it's not all over you, but, but, you know, just something to look forward to if we ever do this in person. Right, yeah. <laughs> our well, things in distance Adam, for now. Well, yes, I, it's kind of the benefits of social distancing. You don't have to deal with the person with the allergies. <laughs> uh, how are you doing in Adams County? Oh, about the same. My sinuses are inflamed and I have a nice headache to go along with it. So yes, it's that yes. nice spring weather. I love that spring. Mm, all that good tree pollen and fungal spores in the air right now. It's delightful. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, someone who I know who really enjoys tree pollen and fungal spores uh, and molds and fungus, all that kind of stuff, is horticulture educator Ken Johnson in Jacksonville. Hey, Ken. Hello. I do enjoy them, but I don't have allergies, so oh. I, feel, I feel great right now. <laughs> Your wife gets it for both. My, my, my wife has more has enough allergies for me, so. Well, Ken and Katie, we have got quite a show for you today. I'm going to go ahead and, and introduce our, our special guests for today. Uh, so we, we first knew him as commercial ag educator Dennis Bowman, uh, but Dennis is now serving as the interim assistant dean for the Ag and Natural Resources team. So he oversees our teams. He is our boss. So hello, Dennis. Welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me on. Well, we'll get to our pay raises later, um, but you know, for now, uh, we'd like to kind of focus on kind of you're looking at your background, um, you know, what you've done in the commercial ag field, and so I'm I'm curious, Dennis, um, you know, before you you stepped into this interim administrative role, you know, what what were you up to in the commercial ag field? Well, I've been an extension for for quite a while, and. Uh, uh, have been uh, an agronomist in uh, central Illinois for, for several years with extension as a, serving as a regional agronomist. Uh, but I've also always kind of had a, um, a leaning towards the technology side of things. And so um, when GPS and uh, started to come on the scene in agriculture, um, I saw some, I had some interest in that and got involved with that. That led into GIS work with the geographic in information systems and, and mapping fields uh, with yield monitors and, and GIS, uh, GPS information and scouting. Um, and then um, as we started to get into about to the 2011 or so, I first started hearing a little bit about remote control airplanes and drones being used in agriculture. And they kind of came on the market in 2013, and I started uh, really get experimenting with how we can use them in agriculture at that point. Um, and all of a sudden, got very busy with a lot of interest in the technology at that time period. Now it's kind of getting to be kind of normal, uh, but uh, um, 
it was a brand new thing in 2013 and I was kind of following it as, as the technology developed and became a little more stable and usable um, over that time period. And then I got asked to be your boss. That's right. That, yes. Just kind of telling you what you should be doing without being able to tell you that you're not doing well. <laughs> so with, when it comes to, to drones then, I, I know, it, you know, we've seen each other at meetings in the past few years before pandemic times. And um, you've talked a lot about uh, drones and, and I've just, it's so interesting to me and in, in how kind of those two systems, you mentioned GPS and GIS, how they, they kind of come together with this technology. Um, because I guess if we explain a little bit further, if we dive in like GPS, how would you distinguish that from GIS? So GPS is just that technology of the satellites that gives you a location. So the, by having some kind of a receiver, you can determine where your location is using the geographic positioning system, GPS. Um, so that tells you your latitude and longitude where you are. And then once you start tying that information um, into other real world data, like a yield point or a soil test value at that point, then you can start turning that, those GPS points and that information that's associated with them into maps. So you get yield maps or you get fertility maps. Um, so there's lots of lots of things we can do with that and start laying that over the landscape and comparing one thing to another. Did the soil fertility have any relationship to the yield? Um, are there other limiting characteristics? Um, we can add other layers like soil types from the soil surveys and those kind of things to try to build up these information sets so we can do some analysis on them. So the key thing, I mean, GIS is maps, but it's it's more the data. It's the, the values that go with each of those points that allow you to compare and do some math and an analysis from one layer to the next. So you can take things like multiple years worth of yield maps um, and turn those maps into kind of a year-to-year -year average for the field. And then you start looking at them on top of each other um, and stacking multiple years and you can start finding, are there areas of the field that are always yielding less than below average or always yielding above average? And then how does that relate back to fertility? Um, and there was one case early on when I discovered um, after looking at five years worth of yield maps and the farmer had lost money farming one section of the field every year. Um, he would be better off not to farm that and to put it into some other kind of production or just out of production and not wasting inputs on it. And so I love how you put that, it, it, how you can ask questions uh, using GIS and find relationships and do that analysis. And uh, I had a, a professor who said, you know, he's like, you know, if GPS is, is like your, your point, your, your, your location in time. GIS allows you to ask questions through time um, yes. and find those answers. And yeah, so I always thought that was a pretty neat way to, to go about it. But when you're using drone technology, a lot of times, like say if you're a farmer, you needed maybe updated aerials or topography or you know some type of contour study, you'd have to wait probably maybe for the county or local government or someone like that to provide that. But now this technology is something that someone with a, a, a drone could provide. Is that right? Um, yeah, and it's uh, and a resolution that's uh, on your own scale. You decide what it's going to be rather than um, taking whatever satellite data might be available um, and not being able to see much detail. Um, 
because you can we've all seen the old Landsat satellite images that can show you states and counties and rivers. Um, but when you start trying to get down to the field level, they, it just kind of falls apart and you get like one dot per field. Um, there are things that are a lot better than that now with some of the newer satellites and we can get to see much more, uh, but still um, we're limited as to, as to how fine a resolution we can get. And so that's where drones kind of bring it down to, to a little bit tighter and, and more detailed level than we can get from uh, the, the satellite technology. So in that vein, as we dial into drones and learn more about them, it is time to play a, a new segment we're going to have here on Good Growing. Um, we're going to field test this with our boss. So you ready, Ken and Katie? As I'm going to be. Do we get to ask you questions after? Uh, yes, but uh, that will be after Dennis logs off, okay? Oh, but, gotcha. um, so this is true or false with Ken and Katie. So I'm going to ask some true and false questions. Ken, Katie, you are going to give me your best guess if it's true, the statement is true or false. And then Dennis is going to uh, come in there with our answer. So we're gonna, I'll kick it off. I'm, I promise this is gonna be easy. It'll be fun. And this is, this first one's gonna be a piece of cake. Are you ready? It is. Ken, you're shaking your head yes, because you got that big beard. I know it's really heavy, so it, it goes side to side instead of up and down. I get it. Be careful um, with inertia. Yes, you got to think about inertia, beard weight, all that stuff. So every time he says no, I know he's really he's shaking his head yes. It's just the beard weight. Um, all right, first question. True or false, anyone can buy and start flying a drone? It depends. Oh, that's that's the extension answer, Ken. <laughs> it really does, though, doesn't it? Like anybody can buy a drone. But you have to be licensed. But you have to be licensed to fly it in certain areas. Or correct? register it with the, with the FAA. Well, okay, Dennis, are they on the right path here then? They are on the right path. <clears throat> I mean, anyone can buy a drone. And once they do register it with the FAA, they can start flying it. Now, if the drone is less than half a pound, a really small drone, you don't have to register it. But anything over half a pound does have to be registered. Now, you don't have to have a license to fly the drone if you're just doing it under recreation for recreational purposes. But what, as soon as you venture outside of recreational purposes, um, then you do have to have a license for a license to fly the drone. Um, and so, um, what is considered commercial by the FAA may be a little more stringent than what the common person would think. So a farmer could buy a drone um, and fly it over his farm and say, gosh, I have wonderful farm. And I'm going to take some pretty pictures of it to put on my farm shop wall because I am very proud of my farm. Once they look at one of those pictures and go, gosh, I need to fix a drainage tile in that area or fix the, the waterway. They're making a business decision based on what they've seen in the drone and now it becomes commercial. And technically they should have an FAA uh, drone pilot's license to do that. And that's something that some, you as a drone pilot, you have a license, is that correct? And Right, I have a license to do that. It costs $150 to take the test. It's a pretty hard test. Um, you have to go to a, a certified testing center um, to take the test. 
Um, and you have to stay current. You have to retest every two years to maintain your license. So it is a fairly stringent process. It does take a little bit of studying or going, tend, going to some kind of a class to, to read up on things. There's lots of available resources online um, and sample tests you can take to figure out what areas you figured out and know and those areas that you really don't need to know. A lot of it um, has to do with airspace. Mm -hmm. And something you learn really fast is that the FAA controls the airspace. Yeah. And if you're going to be in that airspace, you have to understand where you fit. And that's at the bottom of the totem pole. Everything else comes first. Yeah. And, and so you have to know how to share that with everybody else and where you can fly and where you can't fly. And it gets, the higher up you get, the more complicated things can be. So. That and 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 inversely, if you're in municipal areas, then um, you know it, it doesn't matter how high you are. If you're near an airport, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, and you're limited to 500 feet, so you do have to follow the guidelines and the rules. And a lot of what the test is is knowing all the intricacies of the rules. And that's not flying within five miles of a commercial airport, staying below 400 feet. Um, so th those are kind of some of the basics. Okay. So if you, right. if you have a, a field relatively close to an airport, you're out of luck, basically. You're not out of luck, but you have new hoops you have to jump through. And so it also kind of depends on how close you are to the actual runway itself. When I first started, it was that five mile fence. That was it. Um, and if you wanted to go in that, you had to send a note to the FAA and wait 30 days for them to say yes or no that you can fly on a specific day in that airspace. Um, so you had to plan ahead and it wasn't very user friendly. Now there's actually a website um, and, and several companies have this built into their apps and software where it'll look at your GPS coordinates and say, yes, you are within five miles of an airport, but the airports have all been mapped out now and they know where the ends of the runways are and where planes are likely to be and where they aren't likely to be. And if you're off to the side of the runway a couple of miles, but still within that five mile area, you can probably fly maybe up to a 200 feet or 250 feet. Um, or if you're on the University South Farm here and you're too close to the airport, you can only fly up to 50 feet um, in certain areas of the research farm. So. Um, and then all you have to do is just say you want to do it, you put in the time and the date when you want to make your flight, and you get an instant answer back saying you're approved or you're not approved to fly. So it's, it's, it's been streamlined to get permission to fly into those areas. So you're not totally walled out, but you do have extra hoops you have to dump, jump through to get that permission. And some of, the, some of the drones themselves already know that, and they won't fly until you uh, get that authorization code to release them to fly into those areas. I have a family member who had a drone and uh, I think it was like a $1,500 drone and he sold it because it just got way too complicated and he bought one of those one-wheeled hoverboards. He's like, I'm staying on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> well, our, our next true-false question for Ken and Katie, I told you, this is going to be a piece of cake. Easy peasy right here. Here it comes. All right, Ken and Katie, can you tell me, uh, true or false, Dennis flies an XQ-58A Valkyrie drone, true or false? It depends. That answer doesn't work for this question. <laughs> it depends on the day. <laughs> he probably asked more than one. 
seems oddly specific. Go with true. What was it? A DJX? It's X or XQ58A Valkyrie. I'll go true. All right. Well, Dennis, what do you fly? I fly several, I have several different drones, but the ones I'm using most right now for my for my work are a DJI Inspire 2 and a DJI Mavic Pro, Mavic 2 Pro. Um, I also have a few other drones in my storehouse, um, but uh, those are the two I use most often for my work right now. Do you want to explain why I don't have a Valkyrie, Chris? Exactly. See, it, does it does depend. He's got multiple. Okay, okay. <laughs> you can't use the, the extension answer for all of these though. Um, <laughs> So the Valkyrie is actually the newest line of unmanned uh, combat vehicles. So it is a military drone. So <laughs> if Dennis has one of those, and I threw that in there without talking to Dennis, if he had one of those, I was going to sit back and be very quiet for the rest of the show. In, in, one, in my present, one of my presentations that I do when I'm doing farmer programs on, on drones is I do have a... Uh, a nice lovely scene of a, a farmstead with a nice big machine shed with the door open and a predator drone that I photoshopped, <laughs> photoshopped into the bay of the machine shed. I think so. it's some pretty good pictures with those though. <laughs> well, I bet you could. <laughs> the Hellfire missiles do a lot on weed problems too. Oh yeah. <laughs> How's that on rust with wheat? So yeah. Good uh, animal control. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, our, our next question here, uh, true, false, and Katie. So Dennis can sit at his desk where he is now, eat a sandwich while his drone flies a pattern around in his cornfield. True or false? True. Or no, don't you have to be false. so close with uh, your controller? No, false. Don't you have to be able to see it? Uh, Ken is on it. Oh. <laughs> FAA. I could be sitting at a desk, oh, but that desk would need to be within sight of the field that, where the drone is flying to be legal. Uh, I do fly most of the time autonomously, though. I don't normally, most of the time, um, I set up missions in advance and, and hit the buttons on the controllers, and it takes off and goes and flies those routes automatically and comes back um, and then actually comes down to about three feet and then it stops and lets me land it manually. Um, so make sure it's in exactly the right spot and not coming down in a creek or um, some area where I don't want it to be. That's so cool. Okay. Yeah, I can't wait to do this with my own car now or my lawnmower. So yeah. <laughs> well, I, I would say though, as we were talking about autonomous lawnmowers, uh, uh, spinning blades around on the ground is a bit more dangerous than up in the air. Yeah, I think more like your robot vacuum cleaner rather than... Yeah, yeah. Okay. Ken and Katie, our next question here. True or false? Drones take measurements using sensors, just like in Star Trek. They take measurements. They false because uh, it's do they not use exactly sensors? Like Star Trek. Oftentimes it's the cameras, right? That are doing yeah. the measurements. Define sensor. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> 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 
Well, Dennis, what what are the drones doing in the air then? Are they using like lasers? Um, or is it like, you know, uh, Sulu, give me a reading of life on this quadrant of the planet and they just bear own sensor or is it just photography? So I, I liken drones a lot to um, tractors. They're a sky tractor. Now you can take your tractor out and drive it around the field and have fun, but you don't do a lot of work unless you attach something to it. And so the drones, you need some kind of a payload that's going to provide you with information. And so in agriculture, most of the time, that's some type of a camera. But it could be a laser, like a LIDAR sensor, that's going to do mapping and, and elevation mapping. Um, but for what I, my work is, I normally use cameras, um, like the, the Mavic 2 Pro that I talked about has a, a 20 megapixel uh, RGB regular uh, image camera uh, with a one inch sensor on it. So it's a good quality little camera that's mounted on this thing. Takes pretty high resolution pictures. Um, and in just normal light pictures like you're used to seeing with your eye. Now the, the Inspire has uh, a six band camera on it um, that costs more than the drone does. It's a, a, a a Micasense Altum sensor um, that costs over $10,000. And um, it will take um, red, green, and blue RGB normal-like pictures, but it takes each of those wavelengths separately. And you have to manually combine those RGB uh, lines together to get them to make a, a picture that looks normal to our normal vision. Um, and then in addition to the red, green, and blue wavelengths, it also collects um, an, a near-infrared signature, something that you can't see with your eye. And then right between the near-infrared and red, there's a, an area called red edge. And so it captures the wavelength in this red edge. And then it also has a thermal infrared sensor. So it can, it can detect the heat of the, of the ground and the canopy. Um, as well as, as the, uh, the other wavelengths. And so then by taking those into something like a GIS software, I can combine the RGB into a visual picture image of the field. I can uh, do measurements of one uh, wavelength against another to make another kind of map called a diff an NDVI map, Normalized Differential Vegetative Index. There's lots of these vegetative indexes that we can, we can use to try to uh, see how uh, plants are responding to the situations in the field and <clears throat> potentially how much stress they're under um, by looking at the comparisons between the wavelengths. Um, and then the, the thermal um, is really useful in areas, especially where there's irrigation, um, to get an idea of how hot the canopy is or how much moisture stress it might be in. Um, and you can really see that coming through in thermal uh, when the plants are under uh, moisture stress. So, and that's that's all just the light spectrum that you're looking at, really, with that. That's the, well, the electromagnetic spectrum besides mm -hmm. you know, the visible light area. We go, we go outside that as well. Because mm -hmm. a lot of people don't really understand um, when they look at a plant, what colors do most healthy plants look? We think they, they're the vibrant green. We think they're vibrant green. We think green mm -hmm. is, is, is really great. But the reason we see green is because plants don't like green light. If they bounce it all off. So a healthy plant is, is kicking out all the green light and absorbing all the red and blue mm -hmm. out of the spectrum. 
And so by comparing some of the, the way the plants are absorbing the light, the different wavelengths, you can get an idea of, of how healthy they are. That's fascinating. <laughs> and, I love and this. Just story. about everybody that's looked at it has come up with their own different special vegetative index that they think is better than every else, everything else. So there's been lots sure. of academic papers written on these vegetative indexes and, and which ones are better for nitrogen stress or for moisture stress or um, for different species, they react differently. So. And uh, yeah, site by site, soil by soil, you know, your microclimates in each field, it's got to be, there's a lot of data there. But, and, you know, you were talking about uh, the kind of Star Trek kind of thing. And, and, and a lot of what we're doing relates to that kind of saying that you sometimes heard in Star Trek that, um, Captain, we've detected an anomaly. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of what we're doing with drones is finding the areas that are different and then going in to figure out what's going on in those areas or trying to gather other information that clues us as to what might be causing that difference. Sometimes we can't really tell from the air what it is, but we know that something's happening and we know where it is. Um, and we can go in and now that we have the GIS coordinates of those spots, we can go in there on the ground instead of looking at the whole field, just send somebody to those spots to see what might be happening. So maybe you have to take a soil sample to try to figure it out. Or there's tiny bugs you can't see from space that are in there. <laughs> well, I'll head warp five to the next true false question here. So um, Ken and Katie, I, when we look at the uh, time spent doing drone work, Dennis spends most of his time out there actually flying his drone in the field. True or false? False. False. Dennis, what do you spend? Oh, well, well, okay. Thinking about it. I mean, it depends on the size of the field because it does take, (laughs) it used to take us like three hours to fly a field. And it also depends too, is it, are you, are you factoring in like analyzing what you're flying Mm. or is it just setting up your maps because maps don't take that long okay i feel like these are all trick questions no (laughs) yeah (laughs) would never trick you guys can't trick (laughs) us well dennis what do you spend most of your time when it comes to a project you're flying a field is it is it behind the scenes is it out in the field making them or it making maps what's what is the biggest time piece here most of the time is computer time. And um, so one of the things is that because we're limited to flying at 400 feet, um, that um, my drone at 400 feet, um, one picture is about the size of a football field or an acre. So if I'm flying an 80 acre field, um, at minimum, I'm going to need about 80 pictures to map that. But that doesn't work very well because the software needs overlap to be able to line them up. So if you want to go from all these little pictures into one big picture of the field, then you've got to use software that's called photogrammetry that takes all these pictures and stitches them together into a mosaic of the field. And that takes time. Now, I don't have to sit there and do it, but I have to set up the software to do it. And for, say, an 80-acre field, um, and I set my software up to make that mosaic in kind of a medium resolution mode, it's going to take an hour and a half of 
computer processing time on a very powerful laptop um, to do that. So sometimes that's a um, do it at lunch or do it at night and and have have the map ready later. So they don't, let you, they don't let you use the supercomputer on campus. One of the challenges there is you have to you'd have to have to upload all those pictures. And so we're talking each of those pictures is at least five megabytes, if not somewhere between five and ten megabytes, depending on the uh, which drone I'm using. And then you've got um, say 300 of them that you have to upload to the cloud and out in the countryside, that's not going to happen real fast. And then you take the multi-sensor camera and instead of the having one picture for each of those acres, um, you have six pictures in each of the different wavelengths. And so then you've got to rebuild that with all six of those sets of pictures. <laughs> so it's it takes a lot of processing power and take take some time to build those those nice mosaics that that help you really understand what's going on in some of the field. We, and well, then you can, can stare at them for hours trying to figure out what's going on. Oh yeah, yes. And and we can talk about um, maybe on a different show your data storage methods. <laughs> keeping all of this data somewhere. So um, but our, our next question here is, um, can Katie, true or false, one multi-rotor drone, so something like what Dennis flies, it can cover about 25 acres of corn per, per flight. Like per battery charge? Yep, per charge. Depends 25 acres. Hmm? Depends on the drone. Yeah, probably the amount of pictures, but also the uh, wind speed too. What do Those you say, Ken? Very good points. Um, so this is one where it really, really does go, it depends. Mm -hmm. um, because if I'm flying at 400 feet, the maximum altitude and getting as big of area as possible, I can map with, with my drones, I can map about a hundred acres per battery. If I fly lower to try to get higher resolution, um, so that's gonna, that means that all those passes have to be much closer together um, to get across the field. And then that can get quite a bit down. Um, a couple of years ago, I was mapping a, a project and it needed to be at um, 100 feet. And it took three battery changes to fly that um, roughly about 80 acres. Well, kind of in that vein. So the next one, the true false, what do you guys think? So the resolution that Dennis can get here on, on this imagery is can be down to a single plant, true or false? True. She seems pretty sure, Ken. Are you going to go with true? You can false? do stand counts with drones. And it depends. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not getting, giving you any more quizzes, Ken. <laughs> go with, All right, Dennis. Go with how detailed are we with this data? Can we get down to plant specific? Yes, you can. But again, that goes back to kind of Kenzie. It depends on how you fly, how high you fly. But yes, um, you can do stand counts. Um, and um, with my drones, I've kind of determined that 75 feet in altitude is kind of the maximum that I can fly um, and still be able to count corn seedlings. So I can count individual corn seedlings. And I actually had a project um, last uh, summer um, 
with uh, Professor D.K. Lee on uh, a corn uh, seedling counts. Um, and we had several spots um, out in one of the research fields um, where we were doing using the drone to do stand counts. So that'd probably just be for corn, not necessarily beans are too dense, right? Well, uh, depends on the stage. I mean, once beans start to form a canopy, then you kind of lose any chance of looking at those. But we, I was working on a pro another project with uh, uh, Nick Sider, the, our field crop entomologist, on looking at defoliation of soybeans and how high you or how low you needed to fly to be able to look at Japanese beetle defoliation with the drone. That was about uh, 50 feet and we could actually do some decent defoliation of the upper canopy anyway. Okay, now I'm curious. I only see the typically Japanese beetle at the margins of the field. Is that just because that's only where I'm looking or is it in the interior? I, I must know now. <laughs> what did the maps indicate, I guess, or is it too soon to tell? Generally, you're going to find it worse in at the margins. That's where you're going to see some most of the worst damage. But you will find them scattered out throughout the field. Again, you know the way they congregate. Um, if you get a pocket that gets started, sometimes you can have a hot spot that's out farther in a field. But in general, um, you're going to see your highest densities around the margins. Thank you. I've answered that question for me. I feel feel good about that now. So, <laughs> all right. Our next question: True or false? It is legal to spray pesticides using drones in Illinois. True or false? That was a very good I'm question. I'm going to say true. Again, you still on the fence? Go with depends. Yeah, you have a license. <laughs> that, that dice roll doesn't exist. Ken. <laughs> I'll go with true too then. It is true. Um, but you are also right in that um, you have to have a license and not just the drone license. In addition to the drone license, you have to have a crop dusting license, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so you have to follow all the rules that a regular cop, crop duster would have, as well as all the rules that the drones have. Uh, the real challenge with drones is, is the amount of product they can carry um, at a time. So for spot spraying kind of things or specialty spraying applications, um, rights of way or field borders where we're trying to kill off honeysuckle. Um, some of those kind of things where drones may be a, a good fit, or if we can develop some more technology that can help identify just uh, problem weeds or um, areas where we can get by with some kind of a spot spraying, um, the drone may have some advantages. Um, one of the countries that's been doing drone spraying for many years um, has been Japan. Um, and they use these mini helicopters that look more like a real helicopter, but they're about the size of a lawnmower, uh, riding lawnmower. And they can carry several gallons of pesticide and they can go in um, to some of these areas where you couldn't do um, our kind of airplane spraying um, in amongst uh, more developed areas with, we have small field sizes of high value crops surrounded by um, urban development. Um, that they can use these uh, smaller uh, drones to get in there to, to control and apply pesticides in those areas. If you're if you're spot treating, how low would you have to be flying to do that? It depends on the product. I mean, you're not going to be doing something like uh, a growth regulator, Dicamba or 2,4-D um, 
very high in the air um, and be legal. But um, it, you know, the regular crop duster, you know, they, that's not real important to them as to, they want to be low and they want to keep it on target, kind of depends on the wind situation. We'll give you another depends answer. Did you set a drone up to identify the weed and only spray it if it's that weed? We don't quite have that technology yet. Um, so where it's better, easier is where there's bare soil and just weeds. So you don't have to tell it a different from the crop or if you're using a selective kind of thing. There's been a lot of work looking at trying to figure out what wavelengths um, and if there's visual signatures that you can use some of these sensors to tell the greenness of uh, uh, pigweed uh, versus uh, soybeans or corn. Uh, but then you get so many different uh, varieties or hybrids that have slightly different green colors as within the crop um, and whether or not they're healthy or new growth or old growth, that kind of makes it more of a, a little more of a challenge. Um, where you can do things like corn, where you've got a linear leaf versus a broadleaf um, plant, there's been some good work on, on sensors that can identify the difference in those. Um, but it's still, that's a technology that's a ways out there. So visual, you know, we've got machine learning that's going to eventually solve some of these kind of things. We get enough computing power on it and get some slightly better sensors. Um, but yeah, it's it's probably out there still a little farther. So you guys are in, in the vein of the next question. This is maybe not really a true false, but maybe a crystal ball question looking to the future. So Ken and Katie, I'll ask you first, uh, do you see perhaps this as technology that could be used to reduce the amount of pesticides that we use in agriculture? Yes. yes. You think so? All right, Dennis. So, is I, and as I was doing research for this and reading a lot of different websites, I'm seeing lots of statements being made uh, stating something like this. So is this a possibility that we might reduce pesticide loads in the environment using targeted drone applications? Absolutely, yes. And and even if it's not the drone that's doing the application, if the drone can make us a map of where the, the weed escaped areas are or where the weedier areas are, um, that we can load into our ground apl applicators so they can just either change the herbicide mix to a more expensive mix um, in that area of the field or put on a higher dose in that area or turn off where there isn't aren't any problems. Um, all those could kind of cut down our environmental load of the pesticides. Awesome. Well, that's that's good news. Yeah, that's reasons to keep this technology going and uh, improving it. So last, last one, Ken and Katie. Okay, and then you get to ask Dennis questions, all right? Um, so, true, false. Dennis thinks that being an, an agricultural drone pilot is just a fad and there is no career opportunity here. True or false? False. I'll go with false. Well, let's see what Dennis feels about how he feels about this. I would say false. Um, now, being an ag drone pilot that doesn't know anything about ag is probably limited. But um, what we really need is people that understand ag and understand the basics of, of crop production or plant growth um, that have experience in the industry. Um, because you can bring uh, people in 
that have the technological skills to run the drone, but what we really need is to, to build the knowledge that comes from the drone to apply it. So, um, so people that integrate all those things that have the GIS skills, um, understand the drone technology and the sensors that go with them um, and understand uh, the farmer's needs um, are the ones that make this work and make this uh, uh, an important uh, part of the agricultural future. Well, Dennis, thank you so much for uh, you know being here as I, I grilled our co-hosts here, Ken and Katie. Uh, it wasn't that bad, was it, guys? Yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll talk later. We'll, we'll figure this out later. All right, all right. Um, well, Dennis, we are also a question and answer show. People who have called into extension offices contacted us over social media about uh, questions pertaining to the topic of the week. Uh, so if you wouldn't mind answering, we just got a couple questions here uh, to ask you uh, that have come in. So uh, yeah, if you wouldn't mind helping us out. Certainly. All right, Kate, if you wouldn't mind kicking us off this week. Yeah, absolutely. So our first question comes from Adams County and this person said, I heard a buzzing noise and looked up to see a drone flying over my property. Is that legal? Who can I contact if I see a drone where it shouldn't be? So back to the national airspace, the FAA controls the national airspace. Um, as much as you might think that the air over your property is yours, once you get above treetop height, it is no longer yours. It belongs to the FAA um, or they're in control of it. So if a drone is just flying over your property, um, that's totally legal. Um, and in Illinois, it's not illegal for them to take pictures of your property. If you're in Indiana, there's laws against taking pictures of other people's property without their permission. But in Illinois, it's not. Um, in Illinois, there's only a few uh, laws on the books that restrict drones. Um, and those are in relationship to hunting. You can't use a drone to fly over your hunting timber or property uh, within 24 hours of you hunting. Um, and you can't use it to, to um, uh, be a nuisance to the wildlife. And the other, it restricts law enforcement from using drones to spy on you. So if it was a police drone, I guess you could say um, that no, they can't fly over your property without um, a warrant. Um, but uh, otherwise, um, um, if you would get annoyed that it's up there and try to shoot it down, you're the one who would get the ticket or get uh, sued for that. All right. <clears throat> Our next question comes from Morgan County. Uh, what are the plants that cause farm fields to turn purple in the spring? That's henbit. Um, possibly purple dead nettle, but most cases in central Illinois, that's going to be a wheat, winter annual wheat called henbit. Um, it's in the mint family. Um, it is a winter annual, so um, um, it's going to grow and flower in the spring and, and make these nice, pretty purple fields um, that will uh, uh, mature and be gone um, by early summer. Um, but they can cause some, some interference with farm operations. Any tillage generally gets rid of them. Um, most herbicides will take care of them as well. Um, or if you plant late, um, they're normally, they'll be gone um, before very long. Our next question is from Adams County and they're noticing lots of wool damage in their alfalfa fields this spring. What can be done to control the voles? 
That's a bad question and a bad problem to have. Uh, unfortunately, there's not a lot we can do about bulls there, especially in alfalfa. There are some, uh, there's no hardly any cultural controls that, that work well on alfalfa other than deep tilling the field and starting over or relocating your alfalfa to another field. Um, there are some poisons, uh, poison baits that can be used to uh, suppress bowl damage. Um, they're best used as a spot treatment. Um, they're very toxic, need to be handled very cautiously, um, and you probably need to be a restricted use applicator to be able to, to use those products. So um, uh, spot treatments are, are normally the best um, in areas where the, the, the vole nests and the colonies are the densest. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a hard problem and there's not uh, a really good answer for that one, unfortunately. All right, our last question is from McDonough County. During the warm weather, warm early March weather, we tilled the field. Since then, we've had lots of rain and large portions had standing water on it. Does it need to be turned over again? In most cases where there's standing water, if the soil's saturated underneath, it's not gonna compact because the pore space is already filled with water. Um, now you may lose some of that surface structure uh, because of the raindrop uh, damage and you may get some crusting on it. Um, and if, the if, it's, you know, if it's the crusting um, that's the issue, then um, your planning process will probably break up most of that for you and not be a real problem. Um, so I would basically you know, do some uh, little bit of, of hand tillage in the field to see what the soil is really like. It's, I doubt that it would be uh, overly compacted because of the standing water. Um, so um, it, it's, you know, you don't like to see that happen, um, but in most cases, our, our strip tillage that comes out of the planter is gonna, gonna open up those slots and give you a place to, for the seed to, to break through. So it, it kind of depends on the surface situation in the field, but um, I think going out with a, with a trowel um, and, and just checking some of those spots to see if there really is severe compaction that needs to be fluffed out before you go into the field. But in most cases, we could no-till through most of that anyway, depending on, on uh, what options you have on your planner. Well, that was a lot of great information. So Dennis Bowman, uh, interim uh, assistant dean to the Ag and Natural Resources team and commercial ag educator, thank you so much for being on our show today. I'll say good things to all your county directors. Oh, I promise. Yes. Thank you. Yes. And um, yep, yeah, that that pay increase. Right. You know, I mean, I, I understand we're all under a freeze right now. But uh, hey, just uh, yeah, just keep putting that bug in people's ears. That's what that's what I was told as a child. You always bring it up with your boss. <laughs> Don't tell Ken to put a bug in his ear. But that's okay. <laughs> he already he's almost got one in his ear. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> Well, the Good Growing Podcast is produced by Wendy Ferguson and edited by me, Chris Enroth. Thank you very much, Ken and Katie, for being here today, subject to my torturous whims of a true-false pop quiz. So thank you. And should we do this again next week? <laughs> I think we should do this again next week. Even the true and false? <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> well... We shall do this again next week. Uh, whether they want to or not, they are contractually obligated to do so. So anyway, uh, we're going to be talking with Mary Fisher. She is a horticulture educator, and we're going to be talking about how to get these kids out in nature. She is looking at kicking off a new Master Naturalist Youth 
initiative. And so we're going to chat with Mary all about that. Well, listeners, thank you for doing what you do best. And that is listening. Or if you're watching us on YouTube, watching. And as always, keep on growing.